Is that good? Am I on? Okay. Um, what a great psalm for us to look at this morning. Um, if you're curious, this does not signify the end of coronavirus that I've shaved my beard. As some of my students asked on Friday when I walked in, wait, did they find a cure? No, it just means I got lazy and had to shave my beard. Um, and uh, I spared you the, the uh, awkwardness of Friday I came into my class with just a mustache underneath my beard and the kids were just a little bit distracted two or three times throughout the day. I had students say, Mr. Brennan, I cannot take you seriously. I'm sorry. So today, I just kind of was done with it. And this has nothing to do with our, our psalm this morning. Um, so as you can see, um, the, the title or the main idea this morning is humbly hoping, humbly hoping in the Lord and praising the Lord. That's the, that's the big idea. Um, you might add, praising the Lord in all things. As you heard from the reading of Psalm 147, this is a chapter that begins with praise, ends with praise, and scattered throughout is more praise. So that is the big idea of, of this psalm this morning. And there are three main reasons, three main kind of big categories we can see here for why the psalmist is telling us we should praise God. The first is his providential care of everything in the whole universe, from the stars to the crops. God is providentially taking care of everything. And then we see also this other category of his personal care for his people, of his reaching out and caring for them, binding up wounds, personal sort of care. And then at the end, we see this privileged revelation of his word that he has given to his people. And so really each one of these topics is massively important and, and I have sort of an overwhelming task this morning to try to emphasize all of these. And so we're going to look at kind of like a telescope big picture of these, um, knowing that if we were to zoom in on these specific topics, we could be here for many Sundays. Um, so there's a lot to cover this morning. I want to go ahead and pray and we'll jump right in. God, we love you. We praise you. We know that you have given us your word and your word has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God, we pray that even now you might clear away our minds, our hearts, um, so that we may have no obstacles preventing us from just being open to what your word has to tell us. We pray that your spirit might take this word and make it penetrate deep down into our heart to encourage us where we need encouragement, to confront us where we may need to be confronted, God. And we pray that you are glorified and that we walk out of here this morning praising you again. In your name I pray, amen. And so we're actually going to start this morning by looking kind of backwards at those reasons that we have for praising God. And so we're actually going to start at the very end of the psalm. So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Psalm 147, 19 and 20. I just want to read it again so it's fresh in our minds. It says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dwelt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. 
praise the Lord. And so the reason I want to start here is because everything we believe about who God is, about who we are, comes from His divinely inspired Word. We do not trust in changing cultural ideas. Our motive for praising God is not just a personal preference. No, it tells us here, God has declared His Word to Jacob. And I want to remind us that when we see that word Jacob in the Bible, it refers to two things. It refers to God's chosen people, the people of Jacob, and it refers literally to Jacob, the person Jacob. And when we look at that person Jacob, we're reminded of God's initiating a personal relationship through his word, through his speaking, through no merit of our own. I mean, think of Jacob for just a minute. What sort of person was Jacob? He was a lying trickster. He was not the obvious choice to receive blessing. And so I want you to really take comfort in that reality because God's word can save the least likely of all of us. I think when we look at our lives, maybe we have a lot in common with Jacob, at least at times. And verse 20 also says that this is written to Israel. He has not dealt thus as with any other nation. And so when we see that promise of God's word given to Israel, we can take comfort because we are, as Romans 11 tells us, we are grafted in branches. And so we are part of Israel in that sense that we also have been given the great privilege of God's word. So that means God's gracious rules, decrees, judgments, they're available to every believer. You and I today, when we seek God through his holy word, we have access to God. Praise the Lord. That's our first motive for praising the Lord. What a gift God's word is. Praise him for his word. This is, um, it's through this, um, even though this motive is, is listed last, I would say this is the first reason we can know God at all. And so that's why we need to look at this first. This is the foundation, and it's essential that we start here because the rest of the psalm, what it has to show us in many ways is so counterculture that we have to be able to stay with a firm conviction. Look, look, this is not my wisdom. This is what the Word of God has to tell. This is what God has revealed. And so the next two reasons that we're going to look at for, for praising God really are so closely linked that, that we're going to be going, kind of going back and forth from one to the other. And hopefully you notice at the reading of, of the Word of the, that um, chapter by, by Zeke that it kind of goes from... God's providential care to God's personal care. God's providential care, God's personal care. And it kind of keeps going back and forth and weaving those together. And it is essential that we keep both of these together, that we give equal emphasis to both of these, because if we start to neglect one and we start to say, well, yeah, God is in control of everything, but he doesn't really care personally, we run into problems. 
And when we start to say, well, God, sure, he cares personally, but I'm not so sure about him being in control of everything, we run into some pretty big problems if we start to unbalance those two things. And I would actually suggest that one of the most common objections to Christianity stems from unbalancing these two realities. And this is a very common objection to Christianity. It goes like this. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil in the world today? Maybe you've heard that before. The objection follows, well, since obviously there is evil in the world, then God cannot be all-powerful because he doesn't stop it. And, or God is not all good because he can stop it, but he chooses not to. And so, by the way, this is what philosophers call a false dichotomy. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, a false dichotomy. What it is, is it's a limited, unfair presentation of reality, of the actual options. Here, here's a more kind of common way that a false dichotomy could be presented. If someone, I know we're in political season and I really don't want to get into politics, but here's, a, here's an example of how it could work. Either you're for freedom and no taxes, or you want to tax people and make America communist and take away all liberties. Well, wait, are those really the only two options? See, when you hear that example, you should, everyone should kind of be scratching their head and say, wait, 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 wait. There's got to be more to it than just those two options. And that's really how this sort of um, objection to God works. It presents these as being the only two options when really there's more to it. And so I want you to carry that feeling with you this morning as we look at this passage when you have in the back of your mind that objection that you've probably heard before, either God is not all-loving or not all-powerful because he allows evil, I want you to carry in the back of your mind this, this feeling of, no, there's got to be more to it than that. It can't be just what you presented. And, and we'll get to it a little bit more, but for now, I just want you to actually just kind of be a little bit uncomfortable with that question for a moment. So let's start with what this passage has to tell us. Um, let's start with God's personal care for his people. And like I said, um, in this psalm, he kind of goes back and forth. And so we're going to actually just stick with this thread of God's personal care. Um, so we're going to look at verse 2 and 3. And then we're going to kind of skip to the other parts that have to do with just his personal care. So um, look at these with me. Verse 2 says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem... He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Verse 13 and 14, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. And so this really begs the question, wait, wait, wait. Why does Jerusalem need to be built up in the first place? Why do the outcasts need to be gathered back? Why are they brokenhearted? 
Why are there wounds that need to be bound? Why are the humble afflicted? Why are they cast down? Why do the gates need to be strengthened? Why does peace need to be brought once more? Why? We should read those verses and, and, and ask ourselves, what's going on? What's the situation here? And we can know from looking at history, from all of the prophecies and the historical books of the Bible, that what has happened is disaster had come upon Israel. Disaster. You see, this is the sad cycle that we see all throughout Israel. We see this sad cycle in God's chosen people who were chosen to be a light to the people around them, but ended up doing what? Adopting the practices of all those people around them and doing the opposite and failing time and time again. We see that instead of proclaiming God to the nations, they first made themselves spiritually slaves by worshiping other gods, setting up idols, and then naturally followed a physical slavery, often literally being carried away into exile. And so that's why Israel, Jerusalem, is in ruins often and had to be rebuilt. And so I want us to just realize here for a moment that every human being, you and I as well, we do have a sinful impulse to do this as well. From the Garden of Eden all the way to today, we are presented with God's precious gifts, and yet the temptation to sin is constantly there. And it always presents itself as, but isn't this better? Even when we know it will lead to slavery. And so, the question that we can ask ourselves is, is the answer to why Israel suffered or why we suffer, is it simply we suffer because of sin? Is that all there is to it? Well, the answer is yes, we do suffer because of our sin, but there's more to it than that. Yes, of course, my sin, your sin, it has natural consequences. And yes, God promises here to do something amazing when we read verse 2 and 3 and it says, He will gather the outcast. He will heal the brokenhearted. He will bind up their wounds. That is good news for us, brothers and sisters. That is good news because it tells us that when we have made a mess of things in our own lives, when our sin has wounded our own hearts, God promises something amazing. What does he promise? To heal, to bind up, to gather us back from our sinful wandering. That is an incredible promise, but there's even more to the story than that. Not only does our sin harm us, the sin of others also harms us. What that means is not only are we willing participants in sin, reaping the consequences of that sin, it also means that we also are victims who are cut down and wounded by the sin of others. And that's really what that objection to God that I mentioned at the beginning of the, the time gets to. Really at the heart of that objection, these people are asking, how can a good God 
allow other people's evil and sin to hurt me or to hurt the innocent. And maybe you know somebody who's been victimized physically, emotionally, by people who were meant to protect them and care for them. Maybe you've been wounded by someone who was meant to protect you. You see, what, this is not just some sort of like thought exercise. Let's, let, let's imagine these, these questions, these big questions. No, I think this is a very real question for almost everyone that I've ever met. How can a completely loving God, an all-powerful God, allow evil and suffering in the world? Why has He allowed it in my own life or the life of someone I care about so much? Now, I think there's two main groups of people who are asking that question. I think on the one side, there are people who do not believe in God, and then there are believers who are asking that question as well. And so first, for unbelievers, maybe if you're listening online, I want to just challenge you to be honest with asking this question about whatever you're believing now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's easy to kind of say, Christianity, you got to explain that question. But then not be honest and try to wrestle with that question yourself. Can I just present two other really common belief systems and just kind of, I want to, as gently as I can, kind of challenge that these do not answer that question as, as well as Christianity does. If there is somebody in your circle who, who believes in any of the religions that, that deal with karma and reincarnation and, and, and that sort of belief system, I want to just challenge the idea that suffering is a result of your own mistake, either in this life or a past life. Like, like that's, the, that's the belief. And, and challenge whether that brings more comfort than what we see here in the Bible from Christianity. And, and I definitely want to challenge those people who have rejected God entirely who said, you know what, there's no such thing as supernatural. An atheist who says we're just atoms, we're just a collection of energy and matter. There's no ultimate meaning in life. We just should survive a little longer. Ultimately, there's no satisfactory explanation of suffering at all. It's just nature and it just happens. So I want to challenge you to, to honestly wrestle with that question if you have not accepted Christianity. But second, for the believer, for the majority of you, I think, who are here this morning, brothers and sisters who have placed their trust in Christ and can still struggle with this why question, why has God allowed me to suffer like I have or a loved one suffer like they have? I want to just encourage you to approach this question with the attitude of the father that we find in Mark 9. In Mark 9, we see this father who has asked the disciples to heal his son and they haven't healed him. They haven't been able to heal him. 
And so the father now comes to Jesus in Mark 9, 22 to 24, and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. See, brothers and sisters, we need to be honest if we have questions. And we need to come to God with this attitude that says, God, I know you can do anything. I know you are in control of all things. I know you care for me personally. I just have some questions. I don't quite understand. And we come to God with this humility that says, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. I think so much has to do with our attitude when we look at a difficult question like this. And look, in verse 6 of Psalm 147, what does it say in verse 6 of 147? What sort of attitude is the psalmist praising in verse 6? What does he say? The Lord lifts up the humble. God lifts up the humble. This place of humility is an essential place to start. And so there really are so many places in Scripture that we could go to to look at this question of suffering, but, but I just want to try to stay here in Psalm 147. And I think we get part of the answer to this question of suffering scattered throughout this whole passage. And it's not what we first expect. And it's probably not what we think we need to hear. And it's absolutely essential. So look at what it says here. Verse 8 through 11. God, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of horses, nor in the pleasure, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Verse uh, 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? 18. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and his waters flow. And now I want to go back to 4 and 5 because I think verse 4 and 5 frame all of what we just read. We're talking about God's providential care. Verse 4, it says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His steadfast, excuse me, his understanding is beyond measure or infinite. Part of what we need to consider when we look at this problem of pain and suffering in our lives is to step back and see the bigger picture. By way of example, I want you just to consider Joseph for a moment. If we were to zoom in on each individual aspect of suffering in his life, of being beaten up and sold as a slave from his very own brothers, working as a slave and working his way up in a household and then being wrongly accused, sent to prison, interpreting a dream, his buddy, yeah, yeah, I'll remember you, Years pass before he's remembered. If we were to zoom in on each individual suffering, we would say this doesn't make sense. 
And it's only when we step back that it starts to make sense to us, right? It's only when we see at the very end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph say this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, we see but through a glass dimly. We do not see all of eternity spread out across history. We do not see the whole picture. And here's the thing. Maybe we never will. Maybe we never will get to see what Joseph saw, the result of the suffering in our life, and how God can use that to work something beautiful. And so what God does is he reminds us, take a step back. Just take a step back and look Consider the scope of God's power and God's understanding. Look at verse 4 again. He determines the number of the stars. He gives all of them their name. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I think of injustice, suffering, who comes to mind in the Bible? Who comes to mind for you in the Bible when we think of suffering, injustice? Nick just mentioned him last week. For me, I think of just pure human, not ruling out Jesus. I think of Job. I think of Job. I mean, if he certainly was brokenhearted, he certainly was full of many wounds. In fact, I would say the physical, emotional trauma that he experienced, I don't see any other just human being that experienced what he experienced. And, and I think he's so helpful to look at because he doesn't get it right from the beginning. He, he acts like a lot of us would act, and he, he questions God, he challenges God, he blames God, and then he repents, and he praises God, and he trusts God. You see, Job cries out like a lot of us cry out in suffering, in the middle of difficult times. Job cries out, explain yourself, God. This isn't right. How can an all-powerful God, how can an all-good God allow, allow me, Job's talking, someone who is totally innocent, suffer the way that I'm suffering? And here's the thing. The Bible tells us he was innocent. We, we get the inside scoop. He was really innocent. And now I want you to see that God's response to Job is so similar to what we see here in Psalm 147. What God does is so similar. He expands on his creative and ruling power over every aspect of the universe. In Job 38 to 42, you might want to write those, those chapters down because what he does in 38 through 42 is for four chapters, he takes Job on this virtual tour of like, he goes from like mating patterns of goats and going up on the, on the mountains to stars being created to, to seasons over, over so many things. And with each detail, what, Job, what God is doing is he's telling Job, he's asking Job, do you understand this? Do you understand this? How about that? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you even wrap your mind, Job, around this creature I call the Leviathan? 
And what God is doing in his mercy in answering Job this way and in answering us this way is he is saying, look, there are things that your small human mind will never understand. You are looking at one tiny aspect of suffering while God holds every part of it, every part of hum every human interaction, every atom in the entire universe, everything he holds in his mind in perfect understanding. And so when we realize that, we read verse 5 a little differently. God, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. This word Lord in verse 5 is Adonai, which means ruler, Lord, master. What it tells us is that God governs perfectly in abundant power in his understanding of, is, that is beyond measure. So what we see here really is the first step for us, brothers and sisters, humbly hoping in a God that holds all of this even when we don't understand. When we don't understand in the midst of uncertainty, in the middle of a global pandemic, when everything that we took for granted is changed, when we've lost our job or someone we love and care for has lost their job, when we've lost a loved one, when pain, confusion, I don't understand what's happening, when that is real, we humbly hope in God. What God is telling us here and asking us to consider the heavens, he's saying, stop. Just take a step back and look up at the sky. I live in Haiku, so at night when I look out at the sky, it's amazing almost every time there's, I mean, when there's no clouds, right? All the stars spread out in their wonder. Can you count them? Can you fathom the sheer vastness of my creation, God's telling us? Look, I'm a science teacher, so I have to kind of be nerdy here for a minute and show you some pictures of stars. So um, I've asked Erica to share with us a picture of stars. I'm not sure if it's going to pop up there. But um, this is a picture. Um, if you really want to geek out with me, I'll share the link to it. But this is a video that shows what 300 million stars look like. 300 million. Now you could zoom fast and you could watch it. It plays for three minutes and all it is is a pan from left to right of stars that look like that. 300 million. 300 million. Now I just want you to consider for a minute. Scientists say they, they've zoomed in on a part of the galaxy called the Andromeda Galaxy and that's where they took that picture. But, but here's the amazing thing. They don't even know how many galaxies there are. Some estimates are there are, that's, that's the Andromeda galaxy, that little circle there. Some estimates are there are two million million galaxies that are as packed full of stars as that image. Now, the whole point of me showing you that, hopefully, is that you cannot fathom that. I can't. I can't even begin to understand numbers that big. And I think that's the point. That's the point. In verse 4, when he says, He determines the number of the stars, God, with all of his 
power created those stars with his word. Stars, millions upon millions and billions. He spoke and it happened. He gives them all their names. Every single star that we can't even comprehend, he's named each one of those. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And so this is a time where we should do what a lot of the Psalms say here. Have you ever noticed that word selah there in the middle of the Psalms? And you know what that means. That means stop, meditate, wonder. Stop right now and wonder for just a moment with me of a God whose understanding and power is beyond measure. You see, this is where we begin to humbly accept God's perfect power and understanding, and we can echo what Job says. In Job 40, in sort of the middle of this tour of God's universe, Job says, uh, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. And then God takes him on a two chapter long. It adds to it more wonders that he's created. And then we get at the very end, Joseph, or excuse me, Job just saying, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And so this is the very first step, brothers and sisters, confessing, I do not understand everything, but you, God, you do. And so I'm going to trust in you even when I don't fully understand. And now as an aside, just so we're clear, there are many more reasons listed in the Bible for why God allows suffering. Um, it's really outside of what I want to look at this morning, but I, I just put three of them up here for you. You can jot them down. I encourage you to study them a little bit more. Three other reasons, and we saw this already in James. Uh, James 1, suffering helps make us more complete, more mature, develop Christ-like character. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8 gives us this image of it refining us, like the gold that's refined up and the suffering, the heat lets the impurities go to the top so it can be scraped off. And 2 Corinthians 4.17 gives us this incredible imagery that it's preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. That's an incredible image. But really, I want you just to see that in the entirety of the Bible, what served as the most incredible witness of who God is was the reaction of faithful believers in the face of suffering. Don't we see that time and time again? And so I think all of these are really worthy of future study. So I kind of listed them there. Maybe you take a screenshot or you could check them out a little bit more during the week. But um, my main point this morning is just humbly accepting that we may never fully understand all the reasons that God has allowed suffering in our lives but continuing, continuing to humbly hope in faith that God does. That God does understand and he is good. So now let's, let's return to Psalm 147. 
and see how this abundant power and infinite understanding, his providential care of all the universe, his personal care for you and I, what this is meant to do is to push us, to lead us, to just, we can't resist praising God. That's what the response is meant to be. What makes this power so worthy of praise, what makes our response of praise so fitting, that's what verse 1 says, our praise is fitting, is that God has chosen to use his power, his abundant power to heal our broken hearts, to save, to restore the rebel and the wanderer, you and I. The God who created all of that has chosen to use that same power to bring salvation. This should cause us to cry out like we see in Psalm 8, 3 through 4. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Who am I, God, that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. This God who created all things with the word of His mouth, who holds all things together in perfect and infinite wisdom, has chosen to care for you and for me. So let's carry that awe with us as we look at this verse 1, which really is the main point of everything this morning, of the entire psalm. What's the main point? Verse 1, praise the Lord. It is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Praise the Lord. This is emphatic. Exclamation point. Do it, God, the psalmist is saying. Why? Well, we've already seen two big reasons. God's personal care for us. God's providential care for us, for all of the universe, his revelation of his personal word to us also. But look, just in this one verse, it gives us two more reasons. What does it say in this first verse? I want us to see that it can really be translated two ways. That's why I have it kind of in parentheses there. It says, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant. That's one translation. And also, for he is beautiful. And so let's look at that first translation of, for it is pleasant. In this translation, we're reminded that the goodness and rightness of praising God is related to the actual act of praising God itself. It is a good, it is a right response. This connects with the reality that we are created to give God glory. We are created to spend eternity with God, giving him glory. So that makes sense that here on earth, it is going to feel fitting to praise God. That's what we're created to do. It is good, it is pleasant to praise God because God is good and pleasant. That's what that verse tells us. This is the idea of delighting in your delight of God. How many times have you found, brothers and sisters, that you've come to church way down and you have begun to sing the praises of God together with your brothers and sisters and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I feel lighter. I, I, this is good. This is right. 
that's because we were made to do that. And that's one of the reasons, if you're at all able to come to the live time that we have here, why it's so good to do that, to worship with the brothers and sisters. We're created for it. It's fitting. It's good. We praise God because we delight in Him, and in praising God, we find delight. It's pleasant. We enjoy praising God. But the same phrase can also be translated, Praise God, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for He is beautiful. In this way, we can see that just as we look on a beautiful sunset and we can't help but, but notice it. How many times have you been at the beach at sunset? I know I've been you know, playing with my kids and I, I'll stop. Guys, look, look. What's the matter, Dad? Look at the sunset. It's amazing. Let's just sit here for a minute. Look at the the, the red in the clouds, the orange. Look at how it's reflecting on the ocean. It's so beautiful. Wait, let's just sit for a minute because it keeps changing. It keeps getting beautiful in different ways. We have to just sit here and, and watch it. It's so beautiful. In that same way, we can't help but praise what we find beautiful. So in this translation, when we see the idea of looking deeply into the Word of God and into who God is, His character, His salvation, which hopefully we've done in a small part this day, we've, we've seen the beauty of God. And so our attention, our focus should be God. And what else can we do but praise a God that is beautiful? This is a fitting response to the wonder and beauty of salvation. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for His privileged revelation of His Word. It is fitting for us to praise God because He has not left us to grope blindly in the dark wondering what does God want? What is He like? No, He's given us His own Word. Praise the Lord for His providential care of the entire universe in ways that we'll never comprehend the seasons, the crops, the stars, His infinite power and wisdom. And praise the Lord for His personal care for you and I. He has gathered the outcast. Put yourself into this reality. He has built us up. He has healed our broken hearts. He has bound up the wounds that sin has caused, either from ourselves or for someone else in our life. Look, look at the root of this objection of a God that allows innocent people to suffer is a God that can't be all good or can't be all powerful. At the foundation of this objection is the assumption that everything should be fair according to my understanding, according to the way I see things. It's this idea that good people deserve good things. And sure, the bad people, maybe they deserve to suffer, but I'm good, so I shouldn't suffer. Look, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that because God in His infinite power and understanding planned from before the foundation of the earth to take the most cruel, 
injustice in the world, the wrongful trial and execution of his only son, God in his infinite power and understanding took this terrible and unjust suffering and pain and turned it on its head in order to work a wonder, to bring forgiveness for you and for me. And Jesus, being fully God, willingly allowed himself to die unjustly in order to pay the penalty that we should justly pay for our sins. See, the last thing we want is fairness. Remember the wages of sin is death. It would be fair to get our wages. The last thing we want is fairness. And though we may never understand some reasons, some sorts of suffering in our lives, at the same time, we most certainly can never fathom the grace that God has poured out on us. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, that the mercy of God in paying for what we could never pay, the grace of God in counting to our account the righteousness of Christ, all of it, all of it passed through the lens of suffering, of unjust suffering, of suffering that was not deserved, in Christ's death, in our place, so that we might be granted a restored relationship with God that we could never fix on our own. Yes, there is personal suffering that we may never fully understand this side of eternity, but oh, oh, how we must glory in the reality of what Christ's unjust suffering has brought. Nothing less than salvation. Praise God. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. He is beautiful, and a song of praise is fitting. Let's pray. God, you have done what we cannot fathom in bringing the lost to you, in bringing us to you, when our lives have been marked with sin, rebellion, idolatry, you have chosen to call back the outcast, to heal the brokenhearted. God, help us to be refreshed this morning in the wonder of your gospel, your salvation, so that we might walk around praising God, that we, we might be a wonder to a world around us that is in the, the midst of just confusion, of everything is terrible with this uh, COVID-19, that we might actually be able to proclaim, you know, God is good. Praise God. His ways are beyond understanding. His power is infinite. He has saved me. I'm going to praise God.